creeds and criticism meet. Split Frame of Reference podcast. Welcome to the Split Frame of Reference podcast. I'm Nick. And I'm Allison. And today we are joined by our friend, Dr. Ingrid Farrow. We're going to be talking about theological foundations of evil in Genesis and in the Bible, and also suffering and gender and a bunch of other fun topics today. Yeah, and how to navigate them all. Mm-hmm. Perfect. All right. So uh, just to give you guys a little bit of a background on Ingrid, um, until very recently in June, she was the Dean of Academic Affairs and Associate Professor of Old Testament at Northern Seminary. Uh, she basically left uh, to pursue more teaching, writing, and speaking engagements in the area of suffering and evil, and especially the Old Testament and abuse. So she's got a new book coming out titled Evil in Genesis, a contextual analysis of Hebrew lexemes for evil in the book of Genesis. And it's coming out um, by Lexum Press. Is that correct? Yes. Lexemes, Lexum. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, she's also still the per, uh, associate professor at the Scandinavian School of Theology in Sweden and a visiting professor um, in Northern Seminary. Mm-hmm. So welcome, Doc. Thanks. It's great to be here. Great to see you guys. Great to talk. Yeah, and Ingrid and I know each other from uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. It's weird to say that and not to say TEDs, but everyone asks me what it is. Yeah, exactly. It's not a TED Talk. It's actually a place. Yeah. Yeah, it's a place, I swear. Yeah. yeah. And I think you were, were you overseeing, um, was it internships at the time? I forget how we, I think we met because I came into your office about internships and we're also a professor. Yeah, I think that's what I was doing while I was was teaching there also. So yeah, did a few different jobs there, so. Yep. All right. So um, maybe if you could tell a little bit about your story and how um, you came to be, be where you are now. Sure. Yeah. Well, I was uh, a late starter in the whole area of seminary, of, uh, seminary and theological studies, but I had had a lot of hardships in life. And um, so at one point, God just said to me that I needed to figure it out from the scripture, from the Hebrew and Greek for myself. So some of the things that of course preceded that was, well, I was the first one to become a Christian in my home at 16. uh, But before that I had come to the conclusion that the only reason anybody is ever nice to somebody is to get something from them because that was what I saw. And that's, that's pretty accurate in the world, I think in a a large degree. And I really didn't want to live in such a world. I was not contemplating suicide. That was not so much a thing at the time as it is now. We see it so much more often, but at the same time, when my sister said to me that she thought I would die of old age at 25, I thought to myself, I sure hope so. But God came and and I encountered the love of God uh, through simply a person that I knew was a Christian that talked to me and looked in my eyes and in her eyes, I encountered God's love, which is just so amazing. Don't even remember anything she said, but at that point, God started speaking to me. And that was the radical transformation of my life. But I had a whole lot of dysfunctions. And so I didn't know anything about how to find a church or anything, really. I was just a a newbie at all of this stuff. And um, so I didn't even know anything about needing healing from 
my growing up and things like that. But uh, so I did start out with a great experience in a church. It was the Jesus people days. So, you know, you can tell obviously I'm a little bit along the, along the line there, uh, but it was fabulous. You know, we were just seeing miracles and encountering God in dramatic ways on a regular basis. And I'm so thankful for that because if it wasn't for that, I probably would not have been able to make it through the things in life that, that came about. Uh, because this little uh, little tiny house church group that I started with that was so dynamic and part of this larger uh, larger revival really around the world, um, eventually some people filtered in who seemed to know the Bible well, but they uh, were very big on obey them that have the rule over you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That'd be so, yeah, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it just really just squashed everything, especially women. Women were not supposed to even get an education. Women were supposed to mm-hmm. get married, have kids, and make their husbands look good was essentially it. So, you know, the long dresses, no makeup, keep quiet, you know. Yeah. So, you know, real, real place for growth at that point. So it just really squashed all of the initial <laughs> joy that I had experienced in God. And, of course, the miracles ceased and... And things like that. So it just became very, you know, do this, do that, and obey those that have the rule over you because they know what they're doing. And I had been kind of groomed in that growing up. So it was very easy for me to slip back into that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so at, at a point then also, um, you know, I was told the only way I could ever be in ministry was to marry somebody who was in ministry. So of course, I really I had wanted to be in ministry, I'd wanted it just to go all over the world and talk about Jesus. And I didn't know what that meant, but I knew that's what I wanted, you know, but, um, and so uh, there was a point where there was a particular uh, young man there I had known for many years and he was leading Bible studies and crusades and he was in training to be a pastor. He also had a third of the new Testament memorized, which is pretty pretty impressive. So he could stand up and give a three point sermon. So he was groomed being groomed to be a pastor. And, and um, you know, I was told this was the, the right decision to marry this guy. Um, I had, um, I had in some sense already disobeyed uh, the, because uh, I had uh, an undergraduate and I had a master's degree in nutrition and, uh, you know, with specialty in public health and so forth. So I was, you know, I was doing that. I'd actually um, also spent a year living in Israel, doing some research over there. So I'd had a taste of real freedom and just, it was such an exhilarating, incredible experience where again, I was seeing dramatic move of God and with people that were just challenging my faith and, and just this sense of purpose. But when I came home, it was right, slipped right back into this old mold. And, you know, you can see how people, you know, everybody grows up with some degree of brokenness. And, yeah. you know, so now looking back, you can see how a person's brokenness, how um, really, what, you know, what I call malevolent forces or you know, can, can get in there as well as your own internal darkness. And, pull you back into an ineffective lack of flourishing in your yeah. life. So, um, so I married this guy and uh, he was abusive even before we got married. Mm-hmm. And um, the abuse just continued. And anybody who's of course worked in abuse knows that unless the abuse is addressed in a dramatic, extremely firm way, yeah. it just escalates, you know, only a couple percent typically of, of phys- especially physical abusers ever quit. But wow. emotional abuse is just as harmful in so Absolutely. many ways. Yeah. And uh, so any form of abuse, just, you know, diminishing the human spirit. And um, so, um, and 
I, you know, since I wanted to be the good, obedient wife, I wasn't saying anything to anybody. My sister could tell what was happening because she also had, her first marriage was also abusive. So she recognized the signs. So uh, later on, she and I were able to process the fact that we had both made pretty much the same decisions and where that come from and so forth. But uh, yeah, so when he, um, you know, one day when he broke my nose, I drove myself to the emergency room and the doctors wanted me to file a report. And I was saying, oh no, nothing happened. <laughs> I just hit a door, you know, the whole typical stuff. And they said, we can see the imprint of a ring on your nose. We know what happened, at least don't go home. So I went to uh, sign myself in, called the pastor who said, go home and love your husband. So yeah, so that's what I did. So I didn't escape until he tried to kill me. And at that point, um, God sent an old friend to ring our doorbell. I was already, I had already knew that I was going to die. Uh, you know, there was no, he was, he had overpowered me. And as I, and when I looked in his eyes, there was nobody home. So he was, um, he was at the house with you and he was uh, strangling you, correct? Yeah, he was okay. strangling me. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and at that point I just, had peace and I said Lord into your hands I commit my spirit and I was actually I don't remember any pain which is just yeah. kind of a, I don't remember I just remember peace and really just wanting to go home to be with the Lord but then it, God sent someone to ring our doorbell and he stopped and he went and got the door and there I was alive and I said what do I do now and first the Lord spoke a verse to me, he said, you shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord from Psalm 118. And then he said, if you don't get out now, you will die. Mm. So I planned my escape and also started going to counseling and, and the Lord started doing that work of healing, asking the questions, because so often we don't ask the questions that we need when we're in a, in a dire situation. Yeah, fight so, or flight too, yeah. 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 So I got out, the Lord started doing some healing, uh, but I was still uh, in hiding. I remarried and really remarried much too quickly, but God, who is incredibly full of grace, uh, the person that I, that I married had been, a, he was older than I was. He had been a Vietnam veteran. He had been a mercenary. He had been an international martial artist. He inspired with Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee. He was, uh, uh, he had, you know, he was, he was, you know, one of the real tough guys, you know. <laughs> that, yeah. So, and that's what he had been doing. And I felt safe. And that was highly important to me at the time. Yeah, he was very protective. Yeah. yeah. So, so, uh, but I didn't understand PTSD, post-traumatic stress mm -hmm. disorder, or, or the extent to which he was suffering from that. Yeah. And uh, so, but, you know, we, it was this brand new idea that we both had that maybe actually God wanted us happy. Mm -hmm. Because even though in mo so many ways we had nothing in common, what we shared was a deep grief. Mm -hmm. And it became this, this exploration, maybe, maybe God actually wants us happy. Because when my sister had asked me if I was happy during my first marriage, I, I had responded, what does that have to do with life? Yeah, that's, yeah, I understand yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so at any rate, um, we got married and I did have a few miscarriages. And then we had my son. And, um, but when our son was two, he became ill due to metal, medical malpractice. Mm -hmm. And over the next nine years, his health just deteriorated. Your, uh, your husband? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So now my second husband, Walt. And, um, and so as his health deteriorated and in and out of emergency rooms and surgeries, and so our son was just, you know, we just, especially the last five years of his life, he was in constant, 
chronic excruciating pain. Mm. And it was always just a matter of, can we manage the pain today or do we need to take you somewhere? Do we need to take you to the emergency room? So it was just in and out of that. And of course that certainly affected his mind significantly. And um, so survival, all the survival and PTSD stuff just kicked right in. Mm. Yeah. And um, when, he, when our son was 11, he took his life, mm. but he had fought really hard. Uh, but it was really, of course, really difficult. And our son had never really had no memory of what, what you would think of as a normal family life. Oh. You know, his dad had really tried, but his dad had also, you know, so it was really very, very difficult. And, um, and our um, and my son at some point also reached a, a place where he said, "Mom, I think God is mad at us and has abandoned us." Mm -hmm. And for five years, in his teenage years, went as far away from God as he could uh, because he was just so angry and understandably so. Yeah. And uh, so it was. Um, I had started seminary in the last two years of my husband's life because I had questions and I wanted answers. And so this is where God told me to go to seminary. He made it extremely clear because my health was also had also started failing and things like that. So it was this, just this process. And I'm so thankful because God truly caught me there. And so first I got a Master of Divinity. And, um, but even when I started, my hope was that I would go on for a PhD and study evil because I really didn't know what I would find. Yeah. So even when I finished my MDiv and I was starting the PhD, it was in that summer in between those two degrees that God once again kind of caught me yeah. uh, because I, I had been praying for three years, the prayer at the end of Ephesians 3, that I would know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, that I'd be filled with the love of God because I told God, I said, I know you love me because the Bible tells me so. And I knew I had encountered God. I had encountered God's love. And frankly, that was the only thing that was in many ways keeping me hanging on because I knew I had encountered God. Yeah. But at that point I said, but God, your love for me right now is only a theological construct. I don't know that you love me. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that you're good. So when I started my PhD program, that it was the, the problem of evil that I was digging into in all of my coursework and all of my, my research. And that's, of course, what the dissertation ended up in. And you have a healing story, too. I remember, I remember you were telling us about it that one time at TED. Yeah, yeah one of my, yeah, the ways that, that just kind of a miraculous, well, I've had several healing stories, yeah. and often they were interconnected with, with my emotional healing or mm -hmm. other healing as well. Uh, but there were, you know, but, you know, God just kept reaching into my life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because at one point I developed severe asthma uh, to the point where, because well, I was still working full time through, you know, through all my, my coursework because I had a son to support and, yeah. and tuition to pay and things like that. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. And so, um, yeah, uh, but yeah, the Lord uh, had, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was just a really dramatic encounter with, with the person of Jesus Christ mm -hmm. who told me to give him my anger and uh, just uh, appeared to me and said, I've, I died for that anger. Give it to me. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you know, I was able to give him and the, the doctor had, you know, had told me to, to take time off. He said, you could die. You know, it was when God said, you know, <laughs> said, your anger is killing you. I knew it was accurate. And, yeah. and I was, 
you know, after wrestling with that, I was just instantly healed. I just get through my anger to the Lord and I just, just this incredible deep breath came back into me. But, but especially then between my MDiv and the PhD program, I, once again, I encountered God's love and I had a, a moment in worship where all of my life flashed before my eyes and I saw every bad thing that had entered my life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and in each one, it, and, you know, so having your life flash before your eyes was a really bizarre experience, you know, but it did. And, and in each one, God said, here's where this, this came in. Here's where that came in. And each thing was different. And I was so used to beating myself up. Everything was always my fault. I must have done something wrong. But instead of feeling, and I felt no guilt at all. I felt completely wow. embraced by mm-hmm. God's love. And I saw how God had caught me here and caught me there and picked yeah. me up here and picked me up there and kept me going and how God had intervened. And, and so during the course of my PhD, there were times when I'd be studying when God would stop me and say, this is what I showed you where this came in. So yeah, this interesting is, how that works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, now that I call the agencies of evil, so that's the next book that I'm going to be working on, or, you know, just the, where, where is it? Where, what are the sources of evil? So, so you know, my, my life uh, has really become one where God has healed me so dramatically and brought such joy. So from going from a place where for many years I would be jealous at funerals because mm. God, why didn't you take me? Now it's like, I got to go to at least a hundred, maybe 120, you know, I, because oh. there is so much that I just long to do and so much healing I long to bring. But one of the, um, you know, in, in my studies and one of the, uh, the quotes that I love from N.T. Wright in his book on evil and the justice of God he says, uh, he identifies human reaction to evil as first, we ignore evil when it doesn't hit us in the face. Mm-hmm. Second. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's like, you know, because something bad happens. Why did this happen to me? You know, we're all just so shocked. It's like he, he paralyzed. He said, second, we're surprised by evil when it does. Mm. And so third, therefore, we react in immature and dangerous ways as a result. Ooh, yeah. And it, 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 it's so right on because we can see it in our lives, we see it all around us. And you know, so since I spend so much, a lot of my, my time just talking with people who are going through abuse or suffering or you know, like uh, Christians, non-Christians, but especially so often Christians really wrestling with their faith, ready to abandon their faith, you know, coming to me, I hate God. And you know, there was a time when I would have heard that and you hear someone, a Christian say, I hate God and you want to correct them. You want to, you know, just like, but it's like, you got to say it. So lament, yep. the whole area of lament is so important. And, and just that process of how do you, how do you recover? But first of all, one of the main things that, that I've learned from this is it's so important to just let people know, let Christians know there's suffering and there's evil in this world. Yeah, seriously. It's, <laughs> it's happening. You know, so to deal that, with it. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. You know, and, but you know, so much of, of the, uh, the preaching and stuff has been come to Jesus and he's going to make everything okay. You know, it, it's just the soft touch mm-hmm. stuff, you know, come, God is good and you won't have any more problems. He'll solve yeah. them all for you. So people get this wrong idea and, and, and that's why we're all so surprised. So Christian or non-Christian and a Barna study, I think it was, I've got to go back and look this up. I think it was 2017 or 18, uh, a study of Gen Z. And, it, and they said that for Gen Z's, the 39% of the people gen, uh, of that age group 
that are refusing to go to church or don't want to have anything to do with God is because of the problem of evil. Mm. And that's, we as Christians, we have not addressed this at all frequently. And we haven't addressed it well when we have. And so the fact that there are more seminars, there's recognition of the importance of lament. I'm hearing, you know, over these last several years, more people talk about suffering and loss. And Mm. so we need to talk about it. And uh, instead, what we've all, probably all of us who've experienced suffering is people saying incredibly stupid. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Forgiving them? Wait, I didn't talk about, what? What? Yeah. Yeah. Why am I needing to forgive so-and-so? Did I yeah. say I wasn't forgiving them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just coming to conclusions, you know, they yeah. just, so either totally, if somebody has, has some disaster or bad thing happen, oh. totally avoiding them because they're so uncomfortable. Yeah, it's, they don't have and, to go to the Lord. Yes, yes. It's, so you, you, you're totally abandoned in your pain, which is what happens, and they're why there's so much church hurt. Yeah. And, you know, past, and, pastors and people like a friend of mine had open heart surgery and two different people from her church, you know, immediately just said, what sin have you done that has brought this on you? And you're like, really? Thanks. <laughs> have you read the book of Job? <laughs> um, so, or, you know, God needs another little angel and, you know, all of the just ridiculous things that, and hurtful. Yeah. And so often people don't even recognize how hurtful and thoughtless it is. And that's, yeah. you know, so when, when N.T. Wright says we react in immature and dangerous ways as a result, we do that personally, but we also do it to other people because other people ignore evil, are surprised when it hits somebody else, much yeah. less themselves. So, so this is a lot of what drives me, is my own process of healing, the things that I've learned and just seeing, uh, the, just seeing healing in other people's lives uh, and wanting people to think about it well, think about it deeply and, um, and really address it. So that's, that's, uh, that's my background. Okay. Uh, that's a little bit of my story. And uh, my son, I will mention he's married, has a, uh, my granddaughter's first birthday's coming up and uh, he is walking well with God. Now he made his peace with God, but it came through conversation. Yeah. It came through talking about these things and addressing it. And um so it's, I also have a daughter and uh, so uh, she has two kids. So we're a wonderful husband. So God has really uh, blessed me and my family and brought me through, you know, and again, I just gave a few of the highlights. I didn't even mention financially losing everything that I ever had yeah. ever owned and earned. And because of also uh, injustice through the judicial yeah. system, as well as people's evil actions. So, yeah, so it, it's been a time, but, uh, but again, um, we have to, it's so important to be able to tell our stories and also to see how God works in the midst of it. So, yeah. And he really does find us during these times and yeah. it, you know, it, it, it is frustrating because he'll be quiet quite a bit, I know. Mm-hmm. And yes. even when you think you need him to like step in and, um, but I, I, I found always, usually in hindsight that he was always there at the, just the right time. And, yeah. um, when you really were breaking down, he, he, he met you there. <laughs> yeah. Cause there is that aspect of the hiddenness of God. Yeah. God withdrawing himself and, uh, which doesn't mean he's not there. That's right. And so it's, you know, I, I come to see that all of our trials in life, um, are really, a, a, are a test 
Um, and we don't like that idea of testing, but it's right. Um, but it's a, the testing of our faith. So yeah. how we see this world is also really important. Amen. And uh, so Allison, you and I had talked a little oh, bit yeah. about reframing, you know, just framing the conversation uh, in the place where the Lord started to really meet me in my studies and why yeah. Genesis became so important. Because in my studies from the Hebrew text in the first four chapters of Genesis is where the gospel made sense to me for the really in a way that it had never had before. And so just starting with the first two chapters, God is good. Everything, you know, that sevenfold refrain of the goodness of God and the repetition of sevens. The first verse is seven words. The second verse is 14 words. And there's all these multiples of sevens and and 10 and, you know, just the the way numbers are used. But just that seven is just that expression. Everything that God does is good, which is an expression of who he is. So God is good. And that is what we don't believe. We tend Mm -hmm. to not believe when we're in pain. Yeah. We say, God must not be good. He must have abandoned me. He must not be listening. So I'm going to have to take care of this, handle this mm-hmm. myself. Yeah. And so that's why we often abandon God, abandon what he has said and don't believe him. But that goodness of God is, uh, is, becomes foundational. So looking at, at creation, which this is not the best mm-hmm. of, of all possible worlds. Uh, the world we're living in is good. It's not perfect. And the, the best of all possible worlds is the one that's to come. Yes, amen. That is coming. When all evil will be dealt with and some people aren't going to like it. That's right. Yeah. That's something to <laughs> keep in mind. But like. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is, this world is a difficult one, but it was made good. And so first looking at that, the, the goodness of God, and feel free to just jump in. I'm just yeah. rolling yeah. away. Just let me know if, you know. Yeah, yeah, just, to talk about evil, you have to talk about goodness. You yeah. have to talk about what, what is real, what is. Yeah, yeah. And so looking at, looking at uh, Genesis 1 and you know, goodness, blessing, abundance, uh, freedom. There's a degree of freedom. God creates things and lets them grow wild. You know, it's uh, it, the, the Hebrew words are, you know, um, you know, things just like were caused to sprout up like crazy kind of, you know, it's, there's this wildness in a sense, you know, it's just this, this spreading, this, you know, you, um, I, I wish I could make a Disney movie picture of it or something, you know, it's just this wild craziness of beauty of creation. Yeah. But even in, in the creation, there's a reference to, and God created the Taninim, you know, the, uh, and different translations, the sea monsters, you know, <laughs> sea monsters, God, you know, and it's it specifically the word created is used only a handful of times, but God, it starts before he mentions the fish or the birds, God created the sea monsters and the fish and the birds. So it's like, okay, what these tiny name? You know, it's, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are these sea monsters? You know, that's, um, and they're used, you know, that's referred to later, sometimes in, in tandem with Leviathan. Mm. And, you know, of course, Job in chapter 38 of Job, where God's talking, he speaks from creation and talks about he created also the behemoth and, and the Leviathan, and these are huge creatures that are scary. And but in Job, it says it's to bring down the human pride, which is kind of an interesting, yeah, interesting thing. concept. Yeah. yeah. But in the good creation, there are these beasts, 
that are big that, you know, later on the Psalms refers to, you know, the tiny name that are in the seas and they could take down the ships and things like that. These scary things. And uh, Job talks about in creation that God created the animals of prey and things like that. So I know this could right now create some real controversy, with people, <laughs> but we won't go there now. We're just going to proceed. Yeah. So, uh, I, uh, yeah. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. Time. yeah that'd, that'd be another time, you know, it's so when or how, but also, but the importance of bringing all of this up as part of the goodness of creation is then when we get to Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And then of course, Genesis uh, Genesis 2 also. So let us make humanity, Adam, 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 you know, the, and Adam is, you know, for, for uh, those of you who aren't familiar, the majority of time the word Adam is used in the Old Testament as a name for humanity. You know, it's just a word for humanity. It's just in the first, uh, the first four chapters in the first uh, beginning of chapter five, where Adam is referred to interspersed as as a personal name, but even in the beginning part, it's used as humanity. So even in the Septuagint translation, it translated anthropos, and only a few places does it call it Adam with a capital A as a, as a name. So even, you know, pre-Christ, pre-Christian you know Christian influence on it, there was an understanding of humanity being created there. So God created humanity in his image and according to his likeness, so that they would rule over the fish and the birds and so forth, and it goes on over creation. So in, um, in understanding, so that's the second part before we even getting to understand why is there evil, where did it come from, and what do we do about it? You've got to understand who we are and what does it actually mean to be a human. Yeah. So often we say, oh, I'm only human. But what God meant when he said he created humanity in his image according to his likeness for the purpose of ruling over yeah. the created order, he created us as it, it, there's language of kingship, royalty. Yeah. To be language. human is not to be sinful. Otherwise, Jesus yes. is a human. <laughs> but yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Thanks for saying that. That is really <laughs> succinct. Yeah. Yeah. Humanity is a, it's a high honor. Yeah. It's, you know, and we see in chapter two then where, you know, we were, um, we were molded you know, from the, the dust of the earth and imbued with the spirit of God. So we are, you know, so I, so we are dust and divinity. Mm. We are inbreathed with the spirit of God. So to be human means to, yes, we are, uh, we are an, a, a, a physical embodiment of the presence of God imbued with the spirit of God and empowered by his fiat to carry out his purposes. Yeah. We, he gave us in creation, the authority and the responsibility to carry out his purposes. And he doesn't give authority or responsibility without empowerment to do so. Amen. So we were empowered to carry out his will as his image bearers. And that bears out in an understanding through ancient Near Eastern literature and what does it mean to be an image bearer. And, um, and it's also a place of tremendous dignity for every human being. And it's a complete polemic against a view of humanity of all of the ancient, other ancient Near Eastern religions and other other ways of viewing humanity in modern science as well. Yeah. It's a polemic against all of that because in the ancient Near East, you know, they found uh, statues of kings and governors, especially around walled cities and at the, the entrance of certain countries. And so, for example, you know, the, the best known one is Ramses. So you, whether you enter from, from the South or you enter you know, from the East, you know, up at the North, you find these giant statues of Ramses. 
And <laughs> yeah. so this is the kind of thing you would find in other city states too. And sometimes they would have inscriptions. And so one of the most famous ones that's written in three different languages and that uses the same terminology as here in Genesis 1, 26, that this is the statue of, and it mentions the name of the, the king, king, and uh, the Telth in the Telthakiri, so that's where it's the, the site. And uh, this is the image and the likeness of the king. And then basically it, it talks about the responsibilities and so forth. So what we find in the ancient Near East is it would say, however you treat this statue of the king, this image, that is how you will be treated. If you, if you mar or deface, Ooh, the okay, so. that curse is going to come upon you. Yeah. If you bless and bring food and you know, treat this, then that will come upon you because this statue represents the government of the king or the governor. And so when God then, and, and the, the ancient Near East, they, they were well acquainted with the literature. Yeah. You know, we, we think of these, you know, them as being primitives. They so were not. No. There was literature and letters and things being passed, and there was an active trade, trade routes through all these countries. They knew each other's stories. And, um, and so, and they would see these other images and recognize that when God said that he created all of humanity, according to his image and likeness. It means that each of us as a human being, we represent the government of God. Yeah. And however anybody treats you or me or any other human being, God takes it personally. We see that in, uh, I'd say it's practically even in the New Testament, um, just mm -hmm. how you forgive others will be how, you know, Jesus says he'll, you know, God will forgive you. Just things yeah. like that. Are a bit uncomfortable for some of our theology, you know. I think we yeah. don't quite like that part. <laughs> yes, and we especially hear it in the words of Jesus: "Whatever you've done to the least of these, you've yeah. done to me." I mean, that's that's Genesis one twenty six twenty eight language. What you've done to this image bearer, I'm taking personally. If you brought them food in prison, if you fed the, yeah. if you fed them, and so forth, you know, the story of the Good Samaritan, and so forth. What you've done to the one that that you, that others may consider the most despised, mm -hmm. I'm going to take that personally. And it comes back after the yeah. flood. So people could say, well, that was in creation. You know, we were created in the image of God in creation, but that was all lost after the fall. No, in Genesis 5, the genealogy brings back that same. So Adam had a son, and he was in the image. He was in the likeness of his father, who Adam was created, you know, in the image of God. And then after the flood, you think, well, okay, that was still just temporary. But then you got the flood, where all the intentions of humanity were evil all the time. Mm. And, and then God accepts that and says, okay, I'm still going to let humanity live, even though we realize that the heart of people has become corrupted because mm. it uses the term corrupted. Yeah. And, uh, and then, but then in Genesis nine, where he, he's uh, the mandate to not uh, consume blood and to not mar, not to harm one another, whoever sheds at, uh, Adam, Adam's blood by by Adam, his blood will be shed for in the image of God, he made Adam. And then he brings back the creation blessing, but you be fruitful and multiply and so forth. Nice. So even after, after Cain and Abel, after the flood, we yeah. still maintain the image of God and God still holds everybody accountable for the way yeah. we treat every other human being. That's the basis of the dignity of every human being. And that's also the basis of an understanding that we still bear that responsibility yeah. and authority for how we treat others and to protect every other 
person. Yeah, I think it talks about in the New Testament just the surprise of some people that like they're separated for God. And it's like, well, you know, when I was in prison, you visited me as mm-hmm. thirsty, you gave me water. And then there it seems like there's people that are surprised that they're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, some of the parables bear that out too. They came yeah. to the wedding feast, but were not wearing the wedding clothes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Lazarus, you know, the, the rich man, you know, well, look how you treated, you know, that, of course there's the two, the Lazarus yeah. rose from the dead, but also but the poor man, you know, yeah. look how you treated the poor man. You know, therefore you'll be judged by that. And then, and then moving into the New Testament and and we continue to find some image language moving into New Testament, Christ, who is the image of God. And then we then who are being transformed into that image, second Corinthians, uh, second Corinthians, the end of chapter two and at the end of chapter four and so forth, we who are being transformed into that image. And then the church who is the body of Christ, the embodiment of Christ in this earth, that is supposed to now, so both we as individuals and we as the church are to be carrying out. God never took away our authority or our responsibility, but now in Christ as Christians, especially all the way through, even in the foreign nations, we hear in the prophets, they're being judged because of the way they treated the poor. Yeah. They, yeah by oppress, all of the nations will be judged. And as Romans 1 says, there is, we're without excuse. We have no excuse. Everybody really does know. Yeah. Everybody really does know, one, that there is a God, and there is a God who's going to judge you based on how you treated him and how you treated one another. This is huge. Yeah. So so that, for me, underpins the whole problem of evil. Nice. Yeah. So how how then does the the scripture talk about evil? Yeah. That's so that's, <laughs> yes, that's a good, that's a great question. And if you could contrast it with maybe how a lot of us think of evil mm-hmm. or in the West, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and especially when I started you know, my research, I was trying to look, I was looking to, it, do we in the West have a definition of evil? And there really isn't. You know, I, uh, I know Google, when they started their, their ethical statement was do no evil. But they, they didn't define what evil is. And they even said, well, no, you know, we all just kind of have an idea. You know, if, if you think that's bad, don't do it. And for most people, whatever we think is bad or evil is evil. But, yeah, and I mean, we make all these exceptions for the people we don't like or the people that really <laughs> deserve it. Well, I, I have a good reason for doing it. So therefore, mm-hmm. it's not evil. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And which reminds me of my very favorite definition of karma. So <laughs> karma is what gives me peace at night, knowing that all the people I treated badly had it coming. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So that yeah, goes right along with what you said, Nick. It's like, yeah, evil is whatever I think is evil. And if I think, you know, you're an intolerant, whatever, because of what you believe you're evil and therefore I have a right to hurt, harm you. Yeah. I have a right to, to plunder your, your store. I have a right to kill you. Yeah. Uh, you know, and no matter what it is. So we have all of these definitions of evil. And, um, and, and yet, this is, so, it, it's, so it, it's amorphous in so many ways. Um, but we also, in the English dictionary and even in the lexicons, will tend to look at natural evil and moral evil. Mm. And so usually those are the main categories. So you have natural evil. So like in insurance policies, you know, a quote, act of God. <laughs> 
which is if something bad in nature happens, it's God's fault, you know, not the insurance company's fault, you know, so. Oh, yeah, of course. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah, so putting it on God is, you know, even in insurance policies is, is what you see. Uh, and most people also, when evil happens, we will put it on somebody. You're always looking for somebody to blame. And, um, and, and it doesn't mean that there's not, somebody to blame but nevertheless but even when i hear uh people preach sometimes they'll have just enough hebrew so they'll say oh. this word is this is the word evil you know so for example um when sarah says to abraham cast out the bondwoman," and uh and abraham you know the translation is he was displeased when she said that but it uses the word evil so was it evil if it was evil, well, then God came back and said, no, don't look at this as evil. But, you know, the translations say, don't be displeased, but listen to your wife. But God still took care of Hagar and Ishmael and so forth. So, but we think evil is evil. Like you got to lower your voice and, you know, twirl your, twirl a mustache or something, <laughs> you know, sinister, you know. <laughs> and so, but that's not the way the Bible uses evil. So in, in my studies in Genesis, and I continue to, to carry that throughout the Old Testament and reflect in the New as well, um, the, the word grouping that's the most commonly associated with the use of the word evil has to do with sight mm. or perception, the way you see something. So the second most common word grouping, of course, is good, which we expect good and evil. But the most, two-thirds of the time in Genesis, evil is associated with how you see something, which brings us right back to the way most people define evil. It's the way I see it. Yeah. Evil is the way I see it. And, but then when you think of in scripture, how often we hear, hear the term and so-and-so, and for example, each of the kings, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, or he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it doesn't use the word good. It uses right or evil in those, in those times. Mm. And the end of the book of Judges, which is just this downward flushing where it society's crumbling until at the end of the book of judges they're just like sodom and gomorrah they're compared and everyone did what was right in their own eyes mm. and so the concept of evil and good or evil and right is being a perception so god has a perception of what is good which you hear going back to genesis 1 that sevenfold refrain and god saw that the light was good god saw that and he goes through that that syntax god saw that something was good hmm. and the next time you see that identical syntax in the hebrew is when in genesis 3 where the serpent has come to the woman and says hey let's let's look at that one tree let's look at that a little differently you know god said don't don't eat from it but this really is good for you god is holding out on you you know hmm. it's you know and and he outright calls god a liar and says you know it's not you know god said that it, you know the woman says but if i eat of it i'll die he goes no you know, that's a lie. That's not true. You won't die. And, uh, and so, so she looks at it again. Let's look at this a little differently. And then, you know, and that's how all now it, it kind of, and she saw that it was good to make her wise. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the purpose of that tree was to become God and her eyes were opened and the interesting that eyes are open was part of a ceremony that the other ancient Near East would have in creating idols that became gods. Mm -hmm. They would first have the washing of the mouth and then the opening of the eyes ceremony is what would make an idol 
an actual god indwelt by uh, by the, the demonic or the you know and where they would then therefore have powers mm -hmm. so that her eyes were open when you look at that she was her choice was to become autonomous i'm no longer going to ask god what is good and bad i'm going to become the judge the determiner myself of what is good and bad i will now become the arbitrator of right and wrong and good or bad this is what the serpent convinced her was good for her and so instead of looking at all the trees all of the good things that god had given it was like i want autonomy and that is what they got and then their eyes were opened and now they saw differently so that's what happens. And so as Christians, the, the core temptation is always, are we going to see things the way God sees us? Are we going to obey his word and his voice? Or are we going to, well, let's look at this another way. <laughs> you know, and, and you can hear that subtlety. Let's, yeah. let's, you know, and, and we can right, see. God, I've, got a, I've got something to, you know, I've got my wealth to preserve. My, that's my right. Career. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I, yeah. And I remember a particular uh, mega pastor who's, uh, who had given a, a sermon on Easter um, on justifying his use of the church funds. Oh, said, well, there are two different ways, you know, there's, you know, the Bible talks about that. That's, you know, that's for personal funds, but, but there's another way to look at this. You know, it's a, this is church funds, you know, and he was trying, but let's look at this another way, you know, and, and he's afterward, you know, came up charges on gambling and things like oh, that God. and misuse of funds and everything. So it, you know, so most of this slippery slope of, you know, yeah. I kind of hate that term at the same time, but, but for all of us, it's, it's, you know, just, I remember when I was in business and I was trying to run a business the, you know, in, in a good way, tied to all that thing. And every once in a while, a deal would come through, something that would just look really good. And I, and I had, thankfully, I had an, an assistant who was just really a, a prayer person. And, and she would just say, nope. <laughs> and as soon as she would say, nope, I would know that, oh, I'm starting to, let's look at this another way. Yeah, this could be a good deal. It's like, nope. <laughs> you know? So we need that to have people with that nope in our lives. But so uh, my short definition of evil is anything that departs from God and his ways as shown in creation and in covenant with him. So it's, yeah. No, oh, yeah. Uh, do you think, and, and I've, I've noticed this when I, I've been doing, um, uh, looking at principalities and powers language in the New Testament, mm -hmm. my, and the more I do, the very little work I've done in uh, majority world theology, especially as it relates to that sort of thing, uh, there is a holistic view of evil and sin, and they kind of have this bigger picture, whereas I, you, we talk about evil here in the West or, you know, and all that. It's kind of, it's a depersonalized abstraction that, as we almost joke about, it's undefined, which means it's malleable and which means it can be entirely contextual, which you kind of break it down further and further. It just basically becomes what your own truth is, so to speak. And I've noticed that at least in majority world countries, especially uh, African-American and uh, womanist theologians, very much a big, bigger picture. It's, uh, it's almost as Roman seven is taken seriously. You know, there's eight sin has agency. It does this, it does this, it does this. It's not just what a person might feel they've done wrong to another person, you know? Uh, and so kind of what you're getting at, it seems to be that evil is not merely a, a propositional abstraction that uh, it, it almost has like Adam and Eve had agency. It too has some sort of, I don't like the language of free will. I think it's too easy, but the language of, of agency. It has a will, it has determination. 
-hmm. Yeah, thank you. That's that's absolutely right. And um, and you're right. Our our uh, culture here has softened, which in a way that we we yeah. I also in in many of the other cultures don't see that same. But an agency is a term that I've come to use too. So maybe we can talk a little bit about what are some of the agencies. What are some of the ways that that evil can come in? Yeah. And um, and uh, and we can circle back on human agency, but looking at um, you know, malevolent forces. So the concept of a serpent and, and our, our enlightenment uh, world, our enlightenment mind tends to negate any possibility of there being any spiritual beings outside of human agency and science and so forth. So that the only possible agency is mathematics. And, but then once you get into quantum physics and string physics and all this, you realize, oh, there's something else going on here. That's a little, a little more crazy and unique than we maybe give it credit for sometimes. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And so recognizing the language and Michael Heiser in his book, The Unseen Realm, and now he's written several other books, Angels, Demons, and, and so forth. And, uh, and he's a you know, well-respected Old Testament scholar. He's got his own podcast. And, uh, um, and until recently, he was the editor at Lexham Press also. But he's done this fabulous work exposing the language of the unseen realm in, in Scripture, as well as in the ancient Near Eastern, that, that this was a common understanding. And there being different realms of spiritual beings with different powers and principalities, which of course we see the New Testament really picking up on. But that language is that powers and principalities is translated, in, is, is used in the Septuagint as well. So some of the language of the, in the Septuagint comes into Paul's writings also and Christ's words. And so recognizing, so whatever we call the serpent, whether you call him Satan or you call him a malevolent force, it was certainly, there are certainly beings outside of humans that are seeking to, uh, to do harm to God's kingdom and to human beings and that have, um, that are intentional, that do intentional evil. And that is their plan. And so recognizing that there are these malevolent forces at work at various levels and various degrees of power and that these malevolent forces also, and now to go back to Paul in Ephesians 6, for example, whose downright states, we are not wrestling flesh and blood, but powers and principalities these po evil powers in the spiritual realm that have an impact upon nations as well as individual lives. And so, uh, so knowing that, that was something that really, um, in the most positive, I hate to use the word radicalized because that has gotten such a negative connotation, but it helped me so much when I was felt so beat down by everything. I had lost everything of any value to me in this world. And, um, personally, financially, I mean, in every realm. And, mm -hmm. and when I recognized the fact that there are entities at work to destroy me, and you know what? I opened the door in some cases to let them in because I was ignorant of their devices. And mm -hmm. Paul says, you know, we're not ignorant of the, the schemes of Satan. Oh, yeah, we are. In our society, we sure are as Christians. We are downright really ignorant. We don't recognize. We don't even want to acknowledge the fact that there are powers and principalities. So that yeah. is certainly one major agency that the New Testament we know, and Nick, you could probably speak to this more, is just filled with yeah. conversations. You know, and you know, in, in John 5, for this reason, the Son of Man came to destroy the works of the devil. Pretty plain right there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. It's kind of frightening to think that, you know, those times where we just kind of let evil slide or even 
you know, maybe we, we didn't do, do anything. Like, mm-hmm. we're actually being used as tools for some malevolent forces. That's yes. kind of disturbing to think about, I think. Yeah, yeah, but that's it. It's necessary. Yeah. We as Christians need to take that language that's throughout Scripture. If anybody who takes Scripture seriously needs to be recognizing this is throughout Scripture. Michael Heiser's book is a great place to start, but there are others. I was just reading one by, I forget his, his initials, Cared. It was a 1954 book, Powers and Principalities, that I was just reading. It was like, this was awesome. It was just very, he was bringing up that language all the way through in, in an academic way as well. Yeah. And it's a, it's one of those things I'm reading. I was reading, uh, I forget what, I think it was Anthony Thistleton's massive first Corinthians commentary. And when he got to first Corinthians 15, uh, so much time spent on whether or not these are, I, I don't remember the exact phrase he used, but are these um, human or supernatural? Mm-hmm. And my thought is in a Jewish context, even a Greco-Roman context, there's no distinction there's there. No or, it's yeah. like the, there, if there is a line, it's so blurry. And that's the whole idea of demons. and They can just, I, mean, I, I don't want to use the phrase incarnation, but they can come and play in this area. And that's something Heiser, I know, makes a big deal out of, I know. Um, but it's, it's, it's just one of those things. I think people just kind of go, oh, that's all that stuff is nice. But demons are really a metaphor for the existential dread of your depression. I'm like, no, what? It, it, <laughs> it, I'm just giving an, but it's like, yeah. it might be that, but it's surely not only that. Yeah. You know, and I'm not, I'm not saying depression is demonic or anything. No. It might be in some instances. I don't know, but you know, it's stuff in the brain. There's science and all that. But we we kind of, it's it's easier to believe that it's all just me contained in my little existential individualized sphere of this. And it's like, no, it's evil, sin, and death. Those are bigger, yeah. Bigger things. It's kind of. It seems like it's coming down to like you were saying before, perception, but then also part. It seems like there's a strong participation element. Yeah. Um, and like you were saying earlier too, with, um, evil and good, I guess you could say it being more a matter of being teleological, you know, where, where is our perception directed? Um, is it, you know, with the eyes of God or is it, you know, within our, what we think is our own perception of what is right? Yeah. And, and some, an, an important part of that is watching what goes on in our headspace yeah. because, um, you know, the powers and principalities, Jesus talks about uh, a a demon being cast out of somebody and going into a dry place and looking for a home, basically describing like a disembodied spirit Mm -hmm. and, you know, not finding when it comes back, finds the initial uh, person cleaned and swept and moves right back in and brings some of his friends with us. And the person's in worse shape than than they were originally. But, you know, the main place of strongholds in in the language of uh, where Second um, Corinthians four four and so forth is is speculations and ten four speculations in the mind, and so that area in the mind Romans twelve also be transformed by the renewing of your mind, you know, and and don't be conformed. So the way we think becomes a, basically a gateway. How are, how are we? And, and knowledge knowledge and sight are that that's the main cognitive one of the most basic cognitive links that there are is yeah. between knowledge and sight because from a baby, oh, let's see what's in this box, a sighted child. Let's see what's in this box becomes, ah, oh, let's see what this means. So sight and knowledge are completely linked together in a physically through the cognitive way. So the way we see and the way we perceive something is going to transform or conform us to a way of behavior. And yeah. that will change our emotions. 
it'll change our, you know, everything becomes linked to that, uh, to that. And so malevolent forces, they try, that's certainly one of the ways they try to, to work. We see that beginning in Genesis three, let's look at this a little differently, you know, and all the way through. Yeah. And, uh, and we, you know, in, in the book of James that, that, uh, talks about um, you know, jealousy and selfish ambition and so forth. And there he refers to uh, the wisdom that is not God's wisdom, which is, um, which is natural, soulish, demonic. So those are three different realms. So even looking at those as, as realms of opening, he said where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there is confusion in every evil work. Mm. So looking at that, uh, the natural self, which could be just natural instincts, the soulish realm, the way we're thinking, the way we're feeling about something, and then the demonic influence and how those can work together to bring about evil. But the wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, and so yeah. forth. So, um, but kind of, uh, so another agency, uh, nature itself can be an agency that brings harm. Harm is yeah. one of the translations of evil, but without evil intent. Yeah. And so, it's so we have to recognize like Jesus mentions the the uh, tower of Siloam that fell and killed 18 people Jesus doesn't give an explanation he doesn't say why he says but if you don't repent you could end up the same way he doesn't even try to explain it that sometimes bad things happen you know it, maybe that was uh, a storm maybe it was poorly built whatever it was you know those kinds of things happen we recognize that sometimes harm calamity happens through forces of nature and sometimes it's, it's innocent people will get hurt. And so that's something we have to recognize that this is something. Now, ultimately, there can be human agency. So the, what we have done to the environment through pollution, sure. yeah. you know, the spread of mosquitoes from 10% to what, yeah. 90% of the world now and things like that. And, you know, building mobile home parks in a, in a hurricane's uh, area, yeah. things like that. So there's so many things that we can do. Um, people not being responsible in their work when they're building or doing things. So, so human agency can um, support uh, nature. But what's interesting when we look at the life of Jesus and the areas that he took authority over, it included the realm of nature. He is being the image of God who, whose image we are to become conformed to. And I have just lots of stories now of people who have prayed uh, when there were tornadoes coming, hurricanes coming, and seeing them rerouted, seeing them them quieted down just before hitting land and things like that. Yeah. And so Jesus, who had, took authority over the wind and the waves and the powers, he took malevolent over the demonic, so the, the, the uh, malevolent forces, he took power over the natural forces. So, the, so agencies through which harm and using, because evil can just be harm, yeah. it can be calamity, it can be depression, it uh, evil it's is translated overt sinister force directing at you know whatever yeah yes yeah and the way it's it's translated just in the the uh, book of Genesis even the Septuagint translates it with eleven different that one that one lexeme group with eleven different lexemes uh, English uses at least you know typically twenty over twenty different words and rightly so because evil isn't just sinister it's also mean be displeased sad. Um, in need, in lack, yeah. basically in lack of something, uh, harm, hurting. So, so agencies, but, but human agency uh, is what becomes so important in um, what is our role in the problem of evil. And that is, um, and now I've already gone a long ways without uh, yeah. really talking about the importance of, 
of what is our responsibility as people of God, where there is suffering, to be God's agency first to stop evil. Yeah. You know, one of the well, most yeah, that's why we're that's one reason we're we're here, you know, with the world as it is, um, as image bearers, it's our our duty to, to yeah. stop evil. <laughs> yes. Righteousness and justice to bring communities of shalom. You know, that's that's old testament language, but certainly in the new. And then uh, but all the way through, yes, it so basically I believe that the the reason that there's evil in the world is because we have allowed it. Yeah. Beginning with a serpent beginning with the serpent. So even the fall, we allowed that conversation to take place to see differently and to make choices. And so, um, so that's, that's a big statement to make. Yeah. Is that there's evil in the world because we've allowed it. But, uh, and the New Testament language speaks of how is, how is um, evil, evil is empowered by sin, which is empowered by the law. You know, so there are a lot of different things that could empower it, but that'll be a whole, you know, whole additional conversation. Yeah. Let's, so, Take, let's take a let's let's take a slither of this um, since yeah. it's a split frame of reference. Um, how how does this pertain to some of the dynamics of good and evil that we see in the relationships between uh, men and women? Mm, excellent. Yeah. So of course, there we can of course go back to uh, Genesis three. But um, so humanity was given dominion, but that often becomes replaced with domination. You know, as we've heard some of that language before. Um, and authority, um, you know, what's so interesting is, is in, and again, I'm going back to Genesis language, but um, the authority that we were given over the fish and, you know, mentions all creation, but then you get to Genesis chapter four, where uh, Cain was expected to recognize that sin was crouching at the door, mm-hmm. but you must master it. So the only, the only um, human that God has given us authority to be master over is ourself. (laughs) And that is hard enough in itself. So when you look at those opening chapters, that is responsibility. And when you look at the genealogies in in Genesis, there's a very clear, one really clear difference between the genealogies of Cain, of Esau, of Ishmael, and the genealogies of Shem and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They all, of course, have, and so, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so there's, you know, there's father, son, sometimes daughter, wife language. But in the genealogy of Shem, Abraham, and so forth, it only uses that language. The other genealogies all refer to, and he became a king, and mm-hmm. he became a prince, and they built a city. So titles, so the, the accumulation yeah. of titles is something that became outside of God's calling. Mm-hmm. And there again, we hear Jesus you know, stop lord don't be like the gentiles don't be stop lording over other people but we see the servant language coming in the servant language is throughout and the fact that god created angels who were of greater beauty and glory and power that human of humans and we see in hebrews 1 the, the last verse there that the angels were to be ministering spirits to humanity and god himself coming as a servant. Mm. So our role is in the dignity as image bearers of God who were to lift up anybody who was weaker, less less fortunate, less capable, that is our Blessing. job. 
lesbian yes. society. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so, so there, right there is the, the contrast. So women who, uh, and so women have become certainly one of the main targets of that. So instead of lifting up, Christ came and lifted up the church. So if in the marriage relationship, it's supposed to be as Christ to the church, that means the husband is supposed to come and lift up, which is where you hear the language to love the wife as Christ loved the church. And then the church itself, which is referred to as a bride, female language. And so what is it that would glorify God? And that's for the church to be loud, to be well-trained, to be out there taking on, because the church is the image of Christ. The church mm -hmm. is the body of Christ. The bride of Christ is the body of Christ under whom all things have been placed. If you read Ephesians 1, mm -hmm. the prayer at the end of Ephesians 1. Yeah. So Christ is above all. And so the role of woman if a woman's supposed to be silent and trod upon mm -hmm. and thought, you know, thought less of, even if she's quote equal, what do we think? Is that, is that our image of the church? So however we view, whatever our theology of the church is better be the same as our theology of women, mm -hmm. because women are part of just in Genesis one twenty seven, male and female, he created them as image bearers. So we are co-heirs. We are joint heirs, male and female, with uh, the male and the female, joint heirs with Christ, all bearing the authority and responsibility over the world. So yes, there are, we do certainly see some titles in the, the, uh, the New Testament, but the, one of the main is someone who stands in, in front of. So that's, that's a mm -hmm. you know, reference to a, a leader, someone yeah. who stands in front of. But you know, again, uh, the, the, uh, any time a human being is belittling another human being, you know, one of the two main words for curse in Hebrew, the one mostly used of people toward another, comes from the word to make small, to belittle. Mm -hmm. So anytime a man is belittling a woman or a human being is belittling, they are cursing them. Yeah, and, and yeah. by extension, cursing God. And exactly. Maybe not. Yes. Maybe best not to do that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. They're kindly being talked down to. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or mansplaining, you know. I mean, that's <laughs> all. <laughs> <laughs> to throw that into you know. let me tell you god <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and so uh, uh and yeah. so the the fact um and you know allison we talked about this a little bit you know song of songs which when i taught this last time i noticed something that i hadn't seen before and i see in the song of songs uh, the uh, a reversal of genesis 3 which is uh the the woman's uh desire what's the the translation that you use um, oh yeah uh to try i say to turn or return yeah. Um, and yeah, it, yeah, well, that's maybe yeah. it's good. We'll have to come back. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but, there, but, but God's goal is redemption of all of his creation yeah. and certainly human relationships where each person is valuing one another. Yeah. And, and even the word agape in, in uh, BDAG, you know, the, the main, you know, one of the, the main Greek lexicons, you know, refers to agape, which is not used much outside the New Testament, but referring to a, a, a Greek general who was highly esteemed you know, mm. some, so to greatly value to highly esteem is to truly to love yeah and that is the best definition that i find of agape to highly value greatly esteem so how are men and women highly valuing and greatly esteeming one another and to be built up to be more and more carrying out the full authority and responsibility that God has given us in the ministries and missions God has given every person, that every person is a ministry of the gospel. 
no matter what their color, race, gender, creed, you know, anything, they're all ministers of the gospel if we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's, you know, so evil again is seeing somebody, anybody differently than God sees them. And God sees every human being as beloved, yeah. treasured, valued, Amen. worth dying for. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Most simply put, and to be lifted up. You know, we see Jesus. I, I love it. something somebody said. The only time Jesus ever looked down on someone was to extend his hand to raise them up. And I think yeah. that is how we need to look at every human being. And that becomes the core then of doing good. Yeah. Is, Lord, how do you see this person? And what can I, how do you see this situation? And yeah. how can I pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Right here where I am, Lord, let me bring your kingdom. That is my role as an image bearer. And I've gone on for a long time. Hey, yeah, no, very well worthwhile. So yeah, very helpful. Um, maybe a final question. Um, how, let's see, how should I, how, would, well, I guess maybe what are some like lasting thoughts on how um, individuals should navigate evil and suffering? And I know that's hard to say because uh, people suffer in so many ways, you know, yeah. uh, losing a loved one, um, abuse would be a big one. And there's lots, you know, different kinds out there. Um, workplace abuse, um, domestic violence, um, church, uh, like spiritual abuse, um, emotional abuse, which people don't realize is a lot more insidious than yes. oftentimes even physical, like, um, and usually it goes with the physical people that mm -hmm. physically hurt other people do that other stuff too. Yeah. Um, what, what are some, th or even like natural disasters, like I lost this or that because um, of a natural mm -hmm. disaster. What would you, what are some thoughts you would leave with some people that are navigating evil and yeah. suffering um, according to how scripture views these things? Yeah. I think my most succinct answer, because that covers a huge range and each of those could be addressed individually, but my yeah. most succinct answer comes from Jesus' manifesto in uh, Luke 4, when he's quoting Isaiah 61, um, and the Spirit of the Lord is upon, was, is, was upon him, but the Spirit of the Lord is upon us, that God wants, that for us, even in the midst of our hurt and our pain and confusion, to say, God, I may not see it, but I believe that you're good and that you are a redeemer, that you want to take the evil that has happened to me and turn it to good in my life, as well as consequently in others, but when you're in the midst of it, it has to, that Lord, you want to redeem me, that you are not the cause of the evil. God does not cause evil. He does allow the evil. And again, all these agencies that are at work to bring that in, but that yeah. ultimately our God is good and to declare God, you are good and you are a redeemer. And, um, and, and then this, you know, Isaiah 61, which this I've shared with you before, but it's in, in verse uh, 61, verse three, which, which, uh, states it so clearly after he declares to you know, uh, to bring freedom to the captives and so forth. So whatever the captivity that we're in, God wants to bring freedom. He wants to bring those who mourn into a place of peace and joy and restoration. And it's so beautifully stated in the two words to give beauty for ashes is one of the translations. And uh, the, the word beauty there, or it also translated a garland, but it's something that's placed on the head. It's used later in that same chapter to refer to the headdress of the bridegroom. It's used mm -hmm. earlier in Isaiah to refer to the, the beautiful headdress that the women of Jerusalem wore. 
So it's also used in Hebrew to refer to the turban of the priests. So it's something placed on the head. Ashes is also something placed on the head when there was mourning. So we see uh, Job sitting in ashes, and you can just picture putting ashes. So when, when there's ashes, nothing is left. But in Hebrew, the word for ashes and the word for garland are made up of the same three letters, mm. but the first two turned around. And Hebrew does that with words. It creates messages with words all the time. Mm. And in that, the prophet is saying, when we come to God in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our deep lament and agony, and we hand God the ashes that we have placed on our own head, and we say, God, only you can take the very substance of these ashes and turn it around so the ashes themselves become a garment, a garland, a thing of beauty a placed upon my head. And then the last word in that, that God might be glorified, that we might become also of righteousness, that God would be glorified, that word that God would be glorified, same three letters. And so God is most glorified when we come to him in our deepest sorrow, our greatest hurts, greatest shame, greatest guilt, whatever greatest losses. Yes. 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 That's right. That's right. And to see God put it in his hands and work with God for God to turn those around in our lives so that we become oaks of righteousness with a mantle of praise, the oil of joy in our head. God can do that. Only God can actually heal a heart that's broken. Doctors can try, but <laughs> God can actually bind it up and heal it. So that is ultimately the message of the gospel. That is the good news that Jesus came to proclaim. And we are to be agents in that process and cooperate with God and say, I'm not going to let it end here. And yeah. whatever the force of evil was that brought this, I'm going to see God turn it around for good. Yeah, and whatever evil that we're, any of us are participating in, um, God's the God that makes things grow, and he can take even that and make something wonderful out of it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's the best. That's the good news.